Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. He has darkened the door. He's a gentleman always of interest. I'm up to 14 emails. Ask him about the president. We'll do that later. We'll get to uh, Mr. Trump and Mr. Schwartzman's uh, support of uh, various, those of the political persuasions. Um, I, I guess the text is good, but what it takes, lessons in the pursuit of excellence from S.A. Schwarzman. He works for a shop called Blackstone. Just the photos are outstanding. Yeah. Congratulations on the courage of showing a younger Steve Schwartzman <laughs> who put them together. Well, that's um, certainly different than what I look like in the mirror when I'm shaving in the morning, Tom. <laughs> if, you are, if you are of a certain persuasion, Paul, Paul, you're too young for this. There was a battle in the 60s, and this is where your real governance and leadership clicked in. You're the one at Yale that got it so the other sex could visit the other sex's dorm rooms, right? Yes, Ryan. That was a leadership lesson, right? That, that was that was. Give a, us a vignette of that battle. That was a very popular lesson, <laughs> uh, and um, I, I was uh, dating a local girl, and and so I, I thought more access was was a good idea, uh, and uh, for. 278 years, uh, Yale had a policy no. that, that women could not be in the dorms after certain times at, uh, at night. 4 p.m. And, and, and for certain days. And uh, so, so I thought that needed to be changed. Uh, and uh, my, my view is that perhaps we should get rid of those restrictions. But, but I knew if I went to the administration and, and sort of asked for that, they, they, if, if, if it had worked one way for 278 years was going to continue yeah. to be that way. They'd have a series of excuses that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that you know, we'd be uh, in, interrupting students' study. There'd be music going on in the dorms all the time. Yeah. And it would Everybody change. playing Disraeli Girls right. Cream. So, what, so right. how'd you get this done? Well, it wasn't so hard, actually. Uh, I put together a survey of all the possible ways that somebody could object to just abolishing uh, what was called parietal hours uh, and restrictions on parietals. And, and I got um, 11 of my friends to stand outside the, the dining rooms at, at Yale. They handed out the form. Uh, after the meal, it was a dinner, uh, people put the form in a basket. Uh, they delivered all the forms to me. Uh, we tabulated them, uh, and we found that, I think it was like 99.6% of the students had no problem of any type abolishing right. this. Shocking. Uh, there was a, Shocking. There, there was a, a person uh, in, in my uh, college uh, named Reed Hunt who ended up as head FCC. of the FCC, yeah. who was the deputy manager of the Yale Daily News. And I gave it to Reed, and I said, why don't we put it on the front page? And we did. Oh, listen to you. And, and four days later, uh, the administration yeah. uh, dropped all those restrictions. The There's a, the governor's lesson by data. Data, it sounds like M. Bloomberg. I should mention <laughs> that Mr. Bloomberg is a principal owner of this TV and radio shop yes, as well. Is. Paul? So, Steve, what it takes, lessons in the pursuit of excellence. Give us your thought process behind kind of, I want to write this book. This is what I want to put in this book. What were you thinking about? Well, what, what, what triggered this was a meeting I had with the head of a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East who was new in his job, and I was supposed to have a five-minute handshake 
uh, and he started asking me questions about how how do how do how does he make his organization uh, more like ours in effect? How do how does he make it better? How does he increase the performance? Uh, how does he uh, look at the type of people to be hiring? Uh, uh, what kind of incentive programs uh, would would you need? Uh, how, how do you figure out where in the world you should be uh, investing? What type of investments within that uh, should should you be doing? How often should you relook at your assumptions uh, of what's going on in the world? And so it was two and a half hours. All I was trying to do was sell him some Blackstone products. Uh, <laughs> and he, he, in the middle of it, he said, look, don't, don't try and sell me anything. Uh, we're, we're going to buy them anyhow. Okay. I, I don't want my time wasted. And, and so that was uh, sort of interesting, but it's the kind of thing I, I know because uh, uh, I, I run a company, so, so no. I know those things. So anyhow, um, over the next year, uh, most of my time, instead of being able to sell products, was taken up with this type of, of advice that people wanted. Right, right. So I realized I was getting tired doing the uh, same type of, well, of, of meeting. And I right. said, you know, if we write a book, I could just give them the book and they could learn it. Uh, yeah. And then I could have either shorter meetings uh, or different ones. Well, it's a very, very, if you're just joining us, Stephen Schwartzman with us, of course, chairman, chief executive officer, and with Pete Peterson, the co-founders of Blackstone, what it takes lessons in the pursuit of excellence. So it's interesting. I just think of all the alumni coming out of the old Lehman Brothers, and it's just extraordinary. It's like I, I'm a Solomon Brothers alum. It's the same type of thing, some of those names. You and Pete Peterson, when you, when you left Lehman to form Blackstone, I can't imagine you thought it would be what it has become, Blackstone has become. What was your initial goal and ambitions for Blackstone? Um, my, my initial goal uh, was to have the same feeling uh, as, as I had at Lehman, which was being, you know, sort of intellectually stimulated all the time, doing a variety of different types of uh, uh, projects, uh, and I just wanted to recreate that. And uh, in, in, indeed, we have, uh, but at a scale that was uh, not not particularly contemplated uh, exactly when when you started. How many employees do you have now? Well, with, with our companies, it's around five hundred thousand. Uh, you know, our, our parent company uh, is roughly 2,500. On the private equities, Paul mentions a transition from Lehman, which I'm going to suggest was a visible regulatory entity, to private finance, private equity, maybe on a 19th yeah. century uh, basis, merchant banking. Right. Would you support more scrutiny of activities of someone that controls the employment of 500,000 people? Well... Uh, we are, we are supervised. Uh, we we report to the uh, uh, to the SEC, uh, and um, you know it was fascinating, Tom, that during the financial crisis, which was somewhat of a proof of concept, uh, you guys weren't the ones that caused it. Would we, be the we, not only did we not cause it, uh, we basically had almost no problems. Uh, interestingly, the companies that got in trouble, for the most part were the regulatory uh, companies that were controlled by regulators. So this concept of don't you need more regulation, yeah. uh, I, having gone through uh, the crisis right. uh, with flying colors, uh, watching the world around me right. collapsing, um, I, it, it's hard 
empirically to make the case and, that no, regulation per se is an absolute right. and, good. And, well, this is a huge deal because it's easy to talk about in 2019. I have the clearest memories well. of 0506. It's going to be those guys. And it wasn't those right. guys. It was them guys. That was a huge emotion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were some, the some bad deals done in 2006, 2007. Not by too, too much leverage. Steve, one of the things we hear now, you know, we think about 2019 and we had... It was supposed to be the great year of the great IPOs, and we've had a lot of disappointments. Uber, Lyft, we've had deals that have been pulled, such as WeWork and Endeavor. And it's kind of raising the question, private market valuations, public market valuations, who's got it right, who's got it wrong? And people are now saying, gee, maybe the private market, the venture capital market, too much money, chasing too few deals, pushing up valuations, and the public market just ain't buying it. What do you, how do you kind of react to that theory? Well, I, I think... Um you're absolutely right, uh, as, as it pertains to a very narrow group of companies, which are venture capital-financed uh, businesses in technology. Uh, and um, this has happened before, as, as you probably remember, uh, in, in 1999, uh, 2000, we, we had these sky-high valuations uh, that, that basically got, uh, both in the private market and the public market, uh, led to collapse. And at that point, uh, roughly 99 out of 100 venture capital uh, deals collapsed uh, in, in technology. Uh, and, and so um, in the venture world, there's, there's, a, 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 there's an odd phenomena that if you put your money in on a first round and you pay more for the second round, um, uh, you, you've made an instant profit on the, on the on the, on the first round. If there's a third round and you make it go up even more, then you make a lot of money from both the first round and the second round. So, so there's an incentive, perverse incentive, if you will, that paying higher prices than you would want, as long as you were in that investment in yeah, the first place. Yeah, but you're not place, in that game, right? No, we're not in that game. And, and so what's happened is the values of those oh, type of on. companies have been bid up by other venture capital companies. When they pop out in the public market, the, the, the public market looks at it and said, what have you guys done yeah, with right. these valuations? Steve Schwartzman with us. What it takes is a wonderful new book. Phenomenal photographs off the chart. Mrs. Schwartzman said we're putting all the photos in there. Sandy Wild did that. You're going to do it too, Steve. Okay, so great. Let's cut to the chase. We Disaster is out there. They loaded the boat on Lord & Taylor when you were a kid with a dry goods store. You dreamed of walking in Lord & Taylor. What are you going to do? Blackstone's going to pick it up for 18 cents in the dollar? I mean, are you going to pick up the debris worldwide of We Dog? Well, what I'd say is our job in our real estate business is always to buy value. We call it buy it, fix it, sell it. Uh, and if you could buy something at a very reasonable price uh, and it's susceptible of being fixed uh, mm -hmm. and we do it, uh, you know, that's why we've had sky high returns in real estate for 25 years and virtually, virtually no losses. Well, let me cut to this is a serious question. Is the we company debacle so tangible it can harm commercial real estate? In this nation, uh, well, I think in certain cities uh, where where they've been huge, uh, concentrated uh, 
takers of leases or buyers of buildings, uh, it, it'll definitely have mm-hmm. an effect um, because they've gone in very big in relatively few cities. And, and you, you would expect uh, when, when things, you know, sort of wash out uh, for them uh, a bit, uh, there'll be things uh, to buy. So, Steve, we in the financial media here uh, pay a lot of attention to what's going on in the trade negotiations, as I'm sure you do and your portfolio companies do as well. We have the Chinese in Washington, D.C. right now. What would you like to really see get solved, if anything can get solved here over the next several days with the Chinese in trade? Well, it was, it was interesting. I'm, I'm sitting in the studio here at Bloomberg, and they have television screens up. And I, I just saw Vice Premier uh, Liu Ha walking into uh, – trade representative's office uh, with uh, Bob Lighthizer, uh, who's the trade representative for the United States, and Steve Mnuchin, uh, who's the Treasury Secretary. So so whatever I think actually doesn't really matter because the action's oh. going on uh, this in is, that room. Folks, this is it. the Schwartzman <laughs> Act that you get. You get this from Davos to the summer place. He's got like eight summer places. It's just me. I'm just Steve Schwartzman. <laughs> Come on, there's a photo in here of you with Mr. G and Mr. Trump. You have donated to the Schwartzman Scholars, which is legitimate Chinese philanthropy. The NBA's dealing with this right now. Have we broken this odd, wonderful cultural relationship with China with Mr. Trump's trade war? I, I think uh, we've certainly strained it, uh, and, um, uh, and, and that's, that's creating a variety of difficulties around the world in terms of uh, uh, manufacturing, which is really um, declining virtually every place uh, as a result of knock-ons, I think, uh, on, on the trade war. Uh, the, the trade war wasn't meant to be a war. Uh, the trade war... That's what President Trump told us. Was he wrong? Well, um, I think the objective uh, is, is to take a system... Uh, in China that's grown up over 40 years that's been astonishingly successful for the Chinese. They've grown three to four times as much as the United States, uh, accumulated a lot of wealth, employed enormous people and a number of people, and and radically changed their country uh, from GDP per capita of a few hundred dollars to $10,000 a person. Uh, Now, to do that, uh, they went through a classic uh, developing world scenario, uh, hiding behind uh, 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 tariffs, um, uh, relatively closed markets, uh, centrally managed, uh, you know, uh, very light intellectual uh, property protections. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it reached the point where they're the second biggest economy in the world. Just to give you an idea, uh, the U.S. and China together, depending upon which set of numbers you use, are between 35 and 40 percent of the entire world's economy. This is massively concentrated with these two countries. So, so when the U.S. asked China to change from being a developing economy right, to being oh, like uh, a developing technology, that, that the question for on their side is, why should I do it? Since since we haven't had a trade agreement with them in 70 years, regardless of what strategy was used by mm-hmm. different presidents. Uh, that, uh, uh, that Will they change? The answer is uh, yes, uh, but at what speed uh, and what magnitude of change 
uh, over well, time. But Steve Schwartz, when they're not going at Trumpian speed, and this is the money question at right now, you have an exceptional relationship with the President of the United States. You've been a, a great fundraiser, etc. Do you perceive all this agony we're living, whatever our politics, is a one-off due to the president's one or two terms or is there a persistency here of a changed world? I, I think there's a persistency, Tom, that comes from the condition uh, of, of uh, the workforce uh, in the developed world. Uh, in, in the United States, as you rem remember, uh, two years ago the Fed did a study and it said that 40% of Americans can't write uh, a $400 uh, check in an emergency. In other words, 40% of Americans fundamentally have almost nothing in the way of savings. Now, those people are unhappy. Those unhappy people actually ended up electing Donald Trump, which was a surprise to virtually everyone. Yeah. Uh, and those 40 people uh, still are unhappy, as Agreed. you can tell, Agreed. from the populace. From my mail. And so for the Chinese, which has been explained to them, uh, that, that this isn't just a Donald Trump phenomenon. And uh, I, I, I talked to them really in the first, um, right before the uh, inauguration, uh, and, and said, you know, the, 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 the frustrations uh, in the United States and the rest of the developed world are going to be coming at you. And it's not about a person. Uh, and it's not about an administration. Uh, because we have to make sure these people in the United States, on the bottom 40%, have a much, much better outcome. And with populism, they'll get angry uh, at... Um, whoever they're directed to get angry against, whether it's financial companies, whether it's wealthy people, whether think, it's the business community. And Steve, I think your, your point is very well taken because we've seen it not just in the U.S. with Donald Trump's election, but with Brexit, obviously, and you know, in the yellow vest in, in France. What do you think, as a big macro question, might be two thirty thousand 30,000 foot, but income inequality, how would you think U.S. policy should be to try to address that? Is that, I know as you sit down with the administration, maybe have well, some discussions, what, are, what do you think are some of the best ways? Well, I, I, th I think it's, it, it's, it's really important to address this because it's, it's ripping uh, the fabric of the United States apart politically. Yeah. Uh, and the first thing that I think needs to be addressed is the income level. Uh, for, for this group of people. And the, there are a lot of different policy responses you could right. have. What, what I like uh, is increasing uh, the minimum wage and the, uh, to, to $15 where you could afford that different parts of the country. That may be a little bit too high. The reason why I like that right. uh, is, is because to get that, that um, uh, wealth transfer, uh, you actually have to work uh, to get it. Th this isn't passive. Uh, and it's about 15% of the people in the country that that would affect. Yeah. But what happens right. is, is that the people who, who earn more than the minimum wage, uh, when, right. you, when you get close to doubling a minimum wage, yeah. they all have to be increased. So, so this would hit somewhere between 35 yeah. and 40% right. uh, of Americans. So that's a start. Okay. We're running out of time. Barry emails in and says, well, yes, Steve, to buy the New York Knicks and fix it. Uh, we'll see if that'll happen. I got one more question. It's really, really important. I want you to review the future of the New York Public Library. People talk, others do. You took an institution flat on its back, 
Bezos is making it happen with Kindle and all that. Right. Talk about why we need a library, and particularly as you have beautified that marble palace downtown. Well, what's fascinating, uh, counter to what everybody thought, is that attendance at libraries are going up, uh, not down. Uh, I think know, a lot what, of people don't what, know that. Right, and, and, and the reason for that uh, is that a lot of middle class and lower income people don't have access uh, to the internet. And, and libraries have basically dived into uh, you know, using digital media. Uh, and, and so it's a place where, where if you can't afford mm -hmm. uh, some of these devices, you can go. Secondly, um, uh, people who want to do well, uh, you know, uh, uh, middle, middle class people and lower income people, uh, sometimes they, they're living in uh, accommodations where it's, there are a lot of people packed in their apartments uh, or homes. They can't get and it's really piece. noisy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's hard to yeah. study. Uh, and, and what the library provides is, is not only electronic connections, uh, but in digital, the digital world, but it mm -hmm. provides a place where people could actually right. study and think. I got five seconds left. Stocks up? Are you long the market? Uh, I think stocks are nervous. Okay, that was a, sounds like he's ready for radio. Steve yes. Schwartzman, thank you so much. What it takes, folks, are really interesting. It was going to be 800 pages, and Mr. Schwartzman said, cut it down, Stephen. What it takes, lessons in the pursuit of excellence. Short, sharp, smart, smart, smart on lessons learned. Stephen Schwartzman of Blackstone. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.